that a synchrony, that feeling different, even let's just say a gifted person who has deeper existential considerations, it leads to anxiety. You're different. And so I still think that you need to look at as at a gifted person as giftedness as a special need. Giftedness is a special need. It's just easier for the world to understand when you throw in a learning difference. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am excited for today's conversation with Julie Skolnick. Julie is the author of the new book, Gifted and Distractible, Understanding, Supporting, and Advocating for Your Twice Exceptional Child. So you might be wondering, what is a twice exceptional child? A twice exceptional child is a child with giftedness and a challenge or an exceptionality. That giftedness might come hand in hand with behavior challenges, intensity, ADHD, autism, dyslexia, anxiety, and many more. And these sort of combinations are frequently misunderstood by parents, teachers, and even by the person themselves. In this chat today, Julie dispels a lot of myths around giftedness and also thoughtful ideas for supporting and educating kids like this. Before we jump into this episode, here is a one-minute word from our sponsor, PrepDish. Most of you have heard me talk about how much I love PrepDish, which is a meal planning service. And I'm excited to announce that for January, PrepDish is offering protein boost meal plans for free. So if you're looking to boost your protein intake, PrepDish makes it easy. PrepDish brings you a PDF in your inbox each week. You're not getting a box of food. That PDF gives you a list of exactly what you need to buy to prepare the foods and a list of ways to prep those foods in advance so that dish day, getting the food on the table to actually serve it, is much faster and easier. PrepDish has helped me to single-handedly lighten my mental load around meal planning. You can get a two-week free trial at PrepDish.com forward slash families. And when you sign up, you get your hands on these bonus menus. Again, that's PrepDish.com forward slash families. And for the month of January, anyone who signs up also gets the Protein Boost meal plan bonus. Try it out. I think you're going to love it. And without further ado, here's my chat with Julie. Hi, Julie. How are you? Hey, Danae. Thanks for having me on your wonderful podcast. Yes, I'm excited to talk with you. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you. Thank In you. fact, I've already sent it to many, many of my clients. I work with a lot of twice exceptional clients and I have a twice exceptional kid myself. Um, and I'm pretty sure I was a twice exceptional kid. It's the greatest brain. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to start first by having you differentiate or tell me it's the same thing. Um, giftedness and twice exceptionality. Man, let's just laser right in, <laughs> Danae. What an awesome Well, I was question. waiting for an answer to this question in the book, and I didn't feel like, because I think there's different perspectives on this, right? I was wondering oh, yeah. what your perspective was. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so 
I used to say, I only say this to select people, but <laughs> I guess I'm going to say this to a lot of people. And um, I have been saying this to a lot of people. So you saw my three layer cake definition of giftedness. And one of the layers is a synchronous development, not to leave your audience hanging. The other two layers are perfectionism, the other side of which can be anxiety and then intensities or overexcitabilities. But what I like to say is if you use a synchronous development, this developing your superpowers and your challenges at different rates in different times in the physical, social, emotional, and intellectual spheres, then aren't all gifted people to eat. I don't think gifted is not high achieving. Gifted is not sit face forward, hand in your homework, raise your hand, conform. That's not gifted. And so I think gifted is really, as I say in the book, gifted is so not understood. And of course, there are very different, you know, when you see one, two E kid, you see one, two E kids, there's a bunch of things that can be the second E and there's never really only two E's guys. Let's face it. There's like three, four, 10 E's. Um, and, you know, that complexity, the complexity of giftedness in and of itself seems to me that they're, they're going to still benefit from the same strategies. So really what matters, and in my life, it's the now what? So I don't really care what your label is or are. It's more about what's going on. Let me understand what's going on for you, whatever we want to call it. And then let's figure out how we bring out the best and raise self-confidence in you. Right. So in your book, you kind of use the terms interchangeably, giftedness and twice exceptionality, right? Yes. And I usually am saying gifted and twice exceptional. And it's like my compromise to help people who may not be on the same bus with me on that as far as twice exceptionality and giftedness and the asynchronous development. But I truly believe that that asynchrony, that feeling different, even let's just say a gifted person who has deeper existential considerations, it leads to anxiety. You're different. And so I still think that you need to look at, as, at a gifted person as giftedness as a special need. Giftedness is a special need. It's just easier for the world to understand when you throw in a learning difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that is an important distinction. And I like using the words interchangeably because I think that we have as a society attached gifted to perfect. Like those two labels right. have kind of become synonymous in the brains of people who don't really know what gifted means. Which irony, and, right? Perfectionism and perfect, but yes. Right, right. And that's dangerous, right? When mm -hmm. we say we have a gifted kid and then, you know, oh, you're, you're so lucky, right? You have a perfect Oh, kid. it's going to be so much easier to raise your yeah. kid and teach your kid. No and problems. why are you complaining about anything? Oh yeah. All those great myths about giftedness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So can you tell us, first of all, what, how a gifted kid is different? Well, not first of all, I guess I already asked you a question. First of all, can you tell us <laughs> how a gifted kid is differentiated from a high achieving or a bright kid? Sure, sure. So the high achievers, you know, we, there's a, there's a worksheet in the book and something I discussed called gifted versus just smart in, in, uh, in quotes. So if you're a high achiever, right? usually your executive functions are intact. You're really good at organizing, keeping your stuff together, handing it in. You're not 
feeling so frustrated by work because if my goal is to like be a high achiever and get the grade, then I'm going to be kind of psyched that this work is going to take me 10 minutes instead of an hour. So, you know, maybe. This is not to throw high achievers under the bus or to say that high achievers don't have moral circles. It's just the gifted kid is like, I mean, yesterday I had two clients alone, both of which their kids are refusing to do homework because it's rote and boring, makes no sense. They've already proved mastery. Like, what the heck? Why do I have to check this box? Why do I have to conform for you? That external, like doing things for somebody else, that's a huge barrier for gifted and 2E folks, whether you're a child or an adult. Whereas high achievers, the goal is to achieve and check the box and get to the next thing, which could be really important if college, you know, if that's the pathway to college, it's not as existential <laughs> as or infused with morality, how you get there. Mm. But some kids who are gifted with anxiety might kind of function in that capacity where they are checking all of the boxes because mm. of the anxiety that kind of drives that, even though they might feel like it's yeah. unnecessary, do you think? Yeah. So what does Wendy Mogul call that in her book, Blessing of a Skin Knee, something like the teacups, the crispy teacups mm. who are going to break <laughs> at some point? Yeah. Yeah. I once went to a really fabulous talk by somebody, I mean, this was like 15 years ago, and his title of his talk was, if your kid has executive functioning challenges, you're the luckiest person in the world. <laughs> and what he meant by that was they're crunching so much data and thinking so much more widely and deeply that they're such a com their complexity is really what's beautiful. And obviously, if you are thinking in this very complex way, if you're approaching the world in this very existential way, executive functions are going to be really tapped out because you're crunching more data. You're thinking about more things. Hmm. So it, it, while it's beautiful on the one hand, it a little bit, you know, makes it challenging because the child who's trying to juggle all of those things and who is their own priority, a big complaint from teachers and parents is that the kid's, prior, the kid's priority is not or never the adult's priority. Right, right. And that's when they become difficult to us, when their agenda is different from ours. Exactly. I think in general, that's when all kids become difficult for, for us is when their agenda is different than ours. Well, and why? Because we make assumptions, right? Like, why are they just being so oppositional? Why are they being so defiant? Those words are awful. And really, uh, find me a kid who's really, truly oppositional and defiant when you take the environment and change it to meet their needs. So something's happening. Something's happening. Our kids, bottom line to answer your question, Danae, of like differentiating is gifted and two kids. It's almost as though they have a different set of lenses on their eyes. They see so much more. They're affected by so much more. And therefore things that we think should be simple or easy or just come on, can't you just that just isn't isn't their reality. That's not their reality. And it has nothing to yeah. do with wanting to be difficult. <laughs> right. The easy things are hard and the hard things are yes. easy, you said in your book, which I loved that. Yes. I think that simple sentence is, is 
truth, truth with a capital T. There's so much there. Absolutely. You know, I, I mentioned that I have a lot of these kids in my practice, a lot of clients who are twice exceptional, and I feel like they are probably the most frustrating to parents because there is kind of this idea that if you're so smart, why can't you just do this thing that's so simple. Why can't you just do the easy homework? And it does result in a lot of parent frustration. And I think also teacher frustration. Do you see a lot of that? Oh yeah, for sure. And it's not just the easy homework. It's like brushing your teeth or getting dressed or getting out the door or eating your dinner or whatever it is. Right. So yes, there's a lot of frustration. And again, a lot of that comes from the checklist we have in our heads, do the homework, eat the food, get to the school, get in the car, brush your teeth, do all your self-care. And we have all these checklists and we forget to think about what might be underlying the challenge for our kids. So I'm saying this a lot lately. I'm giving everybody a gift. Here's my gift to you. It is an enormous pause button. (laughs) I want everybody to press your pause button when you're feeling triggered and frustrated Um, I had a teacher actually text me the other day. So I'm doing a lot of speaking at a lot of conferences and I had a teacher text me the other day and it was really a lovely, beautiful text saying, Hey, I had this kid come in and they were so like pushing my buttons and totally not listening to what I was saying. And I took them in the hallway one-on-one and I just asked them what was going on for them. And there's no way I ever would have guessed what was going on for them. Mm. So that's really so important for parents and educators and TUI service providers to really, it's so hard. We all look through our own eyes and we have to take into consideration the other person's perspective because it's likely going to be something we didn't think about. But sometimes, Danae, and this is where it gets really complicated, sometimes the TUI kid doesn't know. So if a TUI kid is emotionally overexcitable, meaning that they have the superpower to feel other people's feelings and they walk through the hall and they show up in your classroom after walking by two kids or a teacher and a kid who are in conflict and they absorb that emotion and they are feeling really untethered, they may not actually know why. And they might just need a break to sort of gather themselves and and fill what I call their bucket of resilience in some ways they can attend and be there. Yeah. You talk a lot in your book about optimizing the educational environment for gifted kids to thrive. Now, in theory, that sounds really beautiful. I think in practice, that's a lot harder to do. Can you talk a little bit more about that and the barriers to that? Sure. And 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 by the way, it doesn't mean the same thing ever, right? Because it's based on the two-week kids you have. Once you met two, one two-week kid, you've met one two-week kid. So if you have a kid who has sensory overexcitability and you know the lights are really bothersome and they hum, even though nobody else hears it, they do. Is it an easy intervention to just turn off the lights and open the shades? Can that be done? And of course, then you're doing your cost-benefit analysis of how many other people is that going to trigger? So how do we figure this out? Like we have to actually take into account what is going on for our two-week kids. So one of the things I say in the book, Dene, is um, find the hardest kid to love and love him the hardest. We have mm-hmm. to actually find out what's going on for this kid. And we have to put it to the class. And I don't care the age of the kids, whether they're two or they're 17, 
Like it's really important to have a class community and culture and say, hey, uh, and it can be anonymous. Like here's some things that come to my attention that are challenging because I sent out this survey to everybody. Um, how are we going to handle this? What do you guys suggest? Because if everybody's in on it and everybody's discussed it, and while I know this takes a lot of time, you think, are you kidding, Julie? No way do I have the time to do that. I'm here to tell you, putting the time in the front end. And by the way, think about what the skills you're teaching. You're teaching this incredible way of collaborating. You're teaching empathy. You're There's so many great things that what I'm discussing and describing right now are going to actually arm your children or your students for life with incredible skills. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with Ross Green's collaborative problem solving? So yes. And actually it's called collaborative and proactive solutions now. Yes. You're right. Sorry. Yes. And Ross Green kids. Yes. Kids do well if they could. So he's, he's quoted in my book and I love that. That's really about perspective taking there. Mm -hmm. Those three steps, the empathy step, the define the problem step and the brainstorm or invitation step. Yes. It's about understanding one perspective of the challenging person in front of you or the person who's not able to, um, who has an unsolved problem is what Ross calls it. Lagging skills plus unsolved problems equal challenging behavior. And so it's really understanding and hearing and active listening of what is going on in this situation. Here's how it's challenging for me. And then that invitation to collaboratively problem solve and talk with each other about what could be a good solution. It's a beautiful, beautiful way of approaching the world. And I use CPS with my 2E adult clients and I use it with parents to use with their kids and teachers as well. Yeah. We're going to pause for a one minute word from our sponsor, Paired. Paired is a relationship app for couples. You and your partner download the app and pair together. And every day, Paired gives you questions, quizzes, and games to have fun, stay connected, and deepen your conversations. Personally, I found that it's so helpful to have these prompts. Without the prompts, my partner and I's conversations tend to go into the direction of taking care of the kids, taking care of the house, etc. on repeat. So this helps us think outside of the box, which, let's be honest, we need after many, many years together. It's simple and often hilarious. So whether you're just a few dates in or you've been together for a long time, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner using Paired. Head to paired.com forward slash simple to get a seven day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. Just head to paired.com forward slash simple to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using Paired. A happier relationship starts here. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. Back to my chat with Julie. I do find that a lot of these kids are recommended to go to social skills groups. And you you particularly mention in your book that you don't really recommend them. And I don't Not a either. Fan. Tell me oh, more about why. And what, yes, I think I prefer Ross Green's model as sort of more of a solution for this rather than the social skills groups. But tell me your thoughts on that. Yeah. So let me, let me talk about why I don't think they work social skills groups. Um, and there are very narrow bands of social skills groups that can work. And I'll tell you why for those. So I don't think they work because by and large, they, 
incorporate this sitting in a circle and talking about social skills. And our kids Mm -hmm. can learn that. No problem. Yep. Just tell me the formula. I got it. But are you kidding? When I'm in my amygdala, no way when it counts and I can actually, I need to apply it, but I'm dealing with this person who's totally misunderstanding me. And by the way, how do I actually advocate for myself to like explain all the layers of complexity of my reaction? Yeah, we're not learning that in social skills group. (laughs) So there's the, you know, not really getting to the core of the trigger. Like you should look somebody in the eye. I mean, those things, first of all, so many clients of mine are like, wait a minute, I don't know. Wait, which eye? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we're not even speaking the language of a two-way person most often. Okay. So when do they actually work? And they work when the child really loves the kids who are in the group, which means your parents are paying for a play date, which I'm totally okay for because our kids very often don't have close friends. So if your kid loves to go and hang out with these kids, awesome. All day long, do it. If there is also a therapist and they are not sitting around talking about social skills, but they're doing stuff outside, throwing a football, playing games, doing things together, not screened based. And the therapist can intervene in a non-judgmental strength based way to say, hey, and do maybe Ross Green's approach or just help them to express and advocate for themselves then it's beautiful. You're practicing skills in real time. Then I'm on board. Mm -hmm. But I've had clients, I had a client once who was paying for the social skills group and they had this two-week kid who was really challenged to transition off of screens. And what were they doing? They were doing screens and the parents, you know, rightfully asked like, what are the goals and what are the measurables and how's my kid doing? And like, how does, how, how is he handling losing? And the therapist was like, well, actually your kid never loses. <laughs> you always win the game. Well, that's, that's not really addressing any of the needs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find that as well. And that's, um, I think it is in theory, sending kids to social skills groups. And when I say social skills groups, I'm talking about social pragmatic groups where they're learning some of the reciprocal language and um, learning the dynamics rather than in in some schools, what they do is they pull kids, they do like a lunch bunch type thing where they pull kids who are struggling in relationships with one another and they problem solve in that relationship. And that's a very different type of social skills group, right? This is more, what we're talking about here is more like teaching the actual skills, like the higher level intellectualization of the skills, which is really easy for these kids to learn, but the application pieces where it falls short. Exactly. And what you said, which was so magical about what you said was the lunch bunch for two kids in conflict, not like a bunch of kids who don't know social skills in quotes, sitting around talking about that they don't know social skills. Right. So it's really, um, I've worked with SLPs, speech language pathologists, who are the ones who would be doing this in a school, um, by and large, who have, you know, said, this kid is so obnoxious. There's no way I can ever teach this kid social skills. Mm. And then goes one-on-one and actually learns about the kids and creates a personal responsibility, a personal connection, as you know, is my big thing, personal connection. Um, And then realizes the heart of gold that this kid has and the marshmallow they are inside with this very hard shell on the outside because of all the things that they've had to endure. And then suddenly realizes how misunderstandings could occur. Then what you're suggesting, Danae, is beautiful. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I was a gifted kid, probably twice exceptional kid growing up and I skipped a grade. So I went from fourth grade to sixth grade Mm -hmm. and, you know, looking back, knowing what I know now, I don't think that was a good thing. Um, what are your recommendations on that as far as like kind of just pushing kids ahead? So great acceleration can be a great thing um, in some cases because what the the theory behind that is that it's not age peers that matter, but interest peers, right? Mm-hmm. So very often our two kids get along really well with kids who are younger and kids who are older. I'm guessing your feeling could have been based on the social challenges because you were put in a, a grade that was higher and you weren't um, you weren't emotionally ready for that. And that is also true. So I tend to really like course acceleration. Um, sometimes grade acceleration can also work. Um, I've had parents of profoundly gifted kids who've actually given them the quote gift of time where they actually get an extra year of high school, but they're also accelerated in certain coursework. Hmm. So that's really what I, 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 I'm not against grade acceleration for specific kids. Um, but the social emotional piece definitely has to be paid attention to. I do love course acceleration across the board, I would guess. I can't really think of why that wouldn't be a great thing unless you have. So sometimes the two E-ness is a child who is advanced in reading, um, but socially and emotionally not able to read topics that are more written for that higher level. So that can become very complex. Yeah. Can you explain asynchronous development? Sure. That's a new concept for a lot of people. Yeah. And we, and we talked about that in the beginning of how that is the differentiating or actually the similarity between gifted and two mm-hmm. E. So asynchronous development, the way that I describe it in the book is to think about a three ring Venn diagram where you have your physical self, your social, emotional self, and your intellectual self. All during the day, you are calling upon those three areas of your life. So right now, those of you who are listening, perhaps you're walking, Maybe you're trying to sit still and think about this. Maybe you're in your car driving, please be safe. Um, And maybe, and and you're intellectually trying to process all the things that we're saying. And maybe social emotionally, you're getting triggered or things are really relating to you. Um, And you're managing all of those three areas during the day. Well, we all manage all three of those areas during the day. And we may have a learning difference in one of those areas. We may have a physical difference in one of those areas. And so we're not always... Um, to the highest level of the highest ability that we have. And that's when people say, why can you do this, but you can't do that? That's when we say easy things are hard and hard things are easy. And that is often the cause for people to say, when will you, why can't you, why don't you, why won't you? Like that's the song that our two kids hear. And it's based on this asynchrony why can't you do everything to the same high level? And actually, one of the things I talk about in the book is um, if you look at the intellectual bell curve, right? And you know, when you go standard deviations away on the left, when intellect diminishes, everybody agrees those folks need support. But when you move to the higher IQ number, the higher intellect, 
you're also that many standard deviations away from norm. And the asynchrony is actually stronger and higher, the higher the IQ we find. So as the IQ goes higher, the challenges actually go higher as well. They certainly can. Yeah. You're that much farther from norm, right? 100 is norm. Whether you believe in IQ or not, we can plot certainly the way that people um, uh, do on these evaluations. And so we can see that when you are in that higher range, you're so many more standard deviations away. And we have different levels of gifted. We have gifted, highly gifted, profoundly gifted. And even so, best practices dictate within a self-contained gifted program to differentiate for those levels of gifted, they can be so different. Yeah. I worked with a two-week kid that hit middle school and kind of cruised through elementary school and got to middle school and hit some roadblocks socially, emotionally, and um, cognitively. And it was such an interesting conversation that we had. This client said to me something along the lines of, I, last night I was doing my homework and I had to read something. I had to think about it. At first I didn't, I didn't understand it, but then I I read it and I thought about it and then I understood it. (laughs) And I said, I think you learned. (laughs) (laughs) And it's such a funny thing to think about on being on the other side, right? Is that some of these kids, things come so easily that they haven't really had to have that experience of struggling, working through it and then achieving and that can be very anxiety provoking. Do you see that? Oh, hundred percent. Because when we have the experience of always succeeding and therefore expectations are always high for ourselves and we assume others have for us, what can happen, right? That sometimes leads to unhealthy perfectionism, which leads to underachievement, gifted underachievement. And your kiddo stuck with it read and learned and enjoyed the process, whereas sometimes there's a refusal to do something that's hard because it's scary that you may not actually be as smart as everybody said you were, if you define it in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. School placement can be really difficult for these kids. And when I say school placement, I'm talking mostly about families who have the privilege of exploring alternative schools. Mm -hmm. If public school isn't able to provide or unwilling to provide the resources for their gifted child, even in the independent school sphere, it's very difficult to accommodate these kids to find an environment that fits or an environment that is willing to figure out how to fit these kids. Do you have Mm -hmm. any advice for parents who can't seem to find the right place for their kid? Yeah. So, um, The challenge comes from the fact that 2E is not a black and white label, right? There's so many different, if you, if somebody says I'm a 2E school, I'm still wondering, are you, what what does that mean? Are you really good at interventions for dyslexia? Are you really good at interventions or strength-based approach for ADHD? Are you, you know, like, what does that actually mean? Because there are so many different ways somebody can be 2E. And by the way, the first question should be, what are you doing about the gifted part? So many schools say that they are 2E focused, but they're really deficit focused. Hmm. So what I advise clients to do is to really, first of all, and foremost, look at the culture. 
if the administration top down and therefore the teachers are are taught to and encouraged to appreciate differential learners if they're not offended by students who question and push back if they are a sit and face forward school right the first two are okay the, the third one sit and face forward does not work are they project based do you have can, are there different choices that you can your child can have to demonstrate mastery how do you handle conflict between kids who don't you accept at your school that's another really important question who doesn't succeed at your school is another important question. How do you challenge kids who have a font of knowledge previously? If it's giving more work, or I have a client right now actually who the school, there's an accommodation in the 504 plan that the kid gets paper to draw his inventions when he's done with work. It's better than making him sit there, continue to do silly work that he's already done, but it's not ideal. Really, he should be able to delve deeper. He should have a differentiated curriculum that gives him work that takes into account various um, ways of looking at whatever they're learning and and make, gives him deeper yeah. context. Yeah. So it's so guys, I'm sorry, it's not an easy answer. It's just there's right. no, you know, there's no utopia for two wee kids. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's tricky. You know, I, I've known several people that have gone down this route looking for uh, the right, quote unquote, the right place and asked all those questions. And there are so few resources that exist as it is, but then to find the right resource of the very limited resources, like yeah. you just can't be picky. And it is tricky. And I think a lot of times with these kids, by the time they get to the point where you're looking for a specialized school like this, they've they've struggled a lot, right? There's been a lot of heartache yes. that they've experienced. And there might be social, emotional, behavioral challenges that accompany that are related to that school-based yeah. trauma that they've experienced. Yeah. So then you've got, and my question too, I've never been in a 2E school, but I kind of imagine the kids by the time they get there, is that a lot of this? Are there a lot of kids with social, emotional, behavioral challenges that are sort of ending up in these atmospheres? So there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen and a lot of trust building that has to happen. Um. <clears throat> and it is complicated. It's such a great point that you bring up, Danae, because it really requires a partnership and collaboration between parents and school. And as you know, the third part of my book is about advocacy and how to collaborate because we really have to be on the same team, teachers and parents, to because it's so complex and we cannot expect that we just want our kid finally to sit down and be happy. And we can't just like avoid talking about what's going on and what's happened in the past. So yes, there is a lot, but I will tell you this really cool thing that I, I see happening, which is kids who even have a learning difference in a particular way, um, it is particularly if it's ADHD or even written expression disorder. If they are in a classroom where the teacher gets them, where they feel seen, where with understanding comes calm, right? They are somehow 
able to barrel through their challenges because they feel seen, heard, respected, and understood. It's like a wild phenomenon. So it's not to say, oh, kids could just get over their LDs if they wanted to. That's not, that's not it. But what I'm saying is, and the message is, that the personal connection between a teacher and a 2E child is paramount. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So finding the right people and the right environment goes to the culture and it's teacher by teacher guys. I, I can yeah. actually audibly hear everybody nodding their head. Who's listening to this <laughs> podcast and they're not even listening yet, but I know you're out there right. and I know you're nodding because I know, you, I know, you know, and when you get a teacher who d- gets it, it's magical. Now yeah. there, I do have to say that homeschooling and unschooling is on the rise for our population. And there's a lot of really awesome online education opportunities. Um, But again, there is no utopia because then that begs the question of social emotional and in person and screens and all. And so we just, we have to like make our pros and cons and, and logistically affordability. We have to think about all the things yeah, the society's expectations don't yeah. make it don't make it possible for our kids to necessarily have the room to move and grow and explore and live their best lives. And we put a lot of constraints on them. It's really hard to find that perfect place or that homeschooling opportunity. Um, right. But, you know, there again, it's a cost benefit analysis. There's a great, um, there's a great resource called ghflearners.org for anybody who's thinking about homeschooling, gifted homeschoolers forum, ghflearners.org has a lot of information that's really, really beneficial. Yeah. Well, and it's hard because like you said, there's no perfect place, right? Right. That these, that often, um, just sort of, I think thinking about neurodivergence in general is that our society is really not set up to accommodate people outside of that kind of the 50th percentile box. And it can be really challenging raising a kid like this, feeling like they don't quite fit. Yeah. So, you know, your beautiful podcast is Simple Families, and we're talking about all the complexities. So (laughs) I kind of want to put out there, guys, the number one thing is personal connection, like the number one thing. And listening and asking your child to help you solve a problem those are the greatest, simplest things I can tell you, the approach. Um, and to really have gratitude and recognition for strengths of your child. You know, I always start with my clients. I always start. <laughs> they, I say, you don't come to me for this, but we got to start by me hearing what you think your kid's superpowers are. Right. And by the way, when you meet, yeah, when you meet with, um, when you meet with teachers, that's a really good question to start with too. Tell me where my kid shines. Cause if the mm, teacher's like flabbergasted and has no idea what to say, then we know we're in a toxic environment and we might need to advocate for something different. Mm, yes. <clears throat> yes. Finding people who can see your kid's strengths the yes. same way that you can and working on your own ability to see their strengths, because sometimes that can be hard for us too. If the deficits seem to be so much more pronounced or so much more problematic and disruptive. Right. And it kind of feeds on itself. So if we're only focusing on the deficits, the deficits increase. Yeah. Right? And and what I really want is I want parents to enjoy their two-e kids. I want two-e adults to enjoy their two-e selves. You know, you leave yeah. the room, you're still with you. 
<laughs> it would right. be really good right. if you enjoy being with yourself. Yeah. Julie, I've loved this conversation today. Where can we find you online? Where, where can we find your book? Thank you. Well, the book is everywhere, Gifted and Distractible, Understanding, Supporting, and Advocating for Your Twice Exceptional Child. You can get it anywhere you buy books. You can also go to giftedanddistractable.com, which is on my website. My website is withunderstandingcomescom.com. I highly recommend that you go over to withunderstandingcomescom.com and click on publications and you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, which is also called Gifted and Distractible. And that way, no matter who you are, we have information for all of our stakeholders, for parents, for teachers, and for TUI adults. If you're looking to get time with me, I offer a free consultation. You can reach out to support at withunderstandingcomescom.com, which goes to my amazing executive assistant. And she's way faster in replying than I am. So that's a really good way. And if you're on social media, please look up my name, Julie Skolnick, S-K-O-L-N-I-C-K, or with understanding comes calm, or let's talk to E. I'm on every channel everywhere. And we put out really good inspirational, informational stuff. That's great to see. It's great to share. It's great to share with teachers um, and family members, because we know sometimes that can be complicated. So yeah, I'm kind of everywhere. So please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Great. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you, Danae. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Julie. You can find the links to the things we talked about today in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in and I'll talk with you next month.